Hey guys, welcome back to Legendary Habitat Podcast. This is your host, Colin Koskinen. I'm really looking forward to this episode. We have on here uh, Josh Shields uh, to come on and talk about uh, some different forest stand improvement practices, um, writing a forest management plan, uh, you know, different silviculture practices based on wildlife habitat goals and landowner goals. So I'm excited to, to uh, go into this podcast and uh, discuss a lot of these things with Josh Shield. He is a certified wildlife biologist and also a state forester. So he's got a lot of different uh, experience and, and background uh, through a lot of these different things we're going to be talking about. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Josh, are you on here? I am here. Thanks for having me, Colin. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on here. I really appreciate it. So yeah, Josh, if you want to give a little bit of background about yourself, uh, what your expertise is, your experience, uh, and then we can kind of dive into some uh, some cool different topics that we've got planned for this podcast. Yeah, that sounds great. Again, uh, appreciate you having me on. Again, my name is Josh. I am a uh, conservation district employee. I represent the Manistee Conservation District here in Manistee County and then also the Mason Lake Conservation District. So I cover Manistee County, Mason County, and the west half of Lake County. And essentially, I do a lot of one-on-one technical assistance with landowners, so I am available to meet with you if you're a property owner, walk the property, help answer technical questions, and then try to guide you on the right path based on your goals and also what is actually feasible based on the characteristics of your property. There are certain uh, private sector type work that I do not do because I don't compete with them. So things like actually marking trees for a uh, timber harvest or other type of habitat management harvest or writing a full-blown management plan, these are things I don't do, Um, but I'm connected with the private sector individuals that can make that happen. Um, As far as my background and types of work that I've done, I've been at this job since 2014, but Prior to this, I've I've done all kinds of different work, ranging from uh, forest inventory work and timber sales, invasive species management, uh, different types of surveys for woody vegetation, herbaceous vegetation, uh, wildlife surveys, uh, birds, small and large mammals, terrestrial and aquatic arthropods, fish, reptiles, amphibians. I've done some stream monitoring work. And of course, I've done the private sector work where I wrote management plans and set up uh, timber sales and things like that and I've done some research so uh, my education for those who are interested um, (laughs) I've got a bachelor's in ecology and a master's uh, in forest management from Michigan Tech and then I got my PhD in forestry from Purdue and at Purdue my uh, focus was really on the impacts of invasive shrubs on native wildlife and native plants so I, um, I carry several certifications so in short, that means I, I behave as a forester, a wildlife biologist, and an arborist, essentially. So these are the types of questions I get when I meet with landowners. And the other big part of uh, my job is outreach. So I teach workshops um, and give other types of presentations on various topics that are of interest to the community. So that's sort of a summary of uh, who I am, Colin. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. That's a uh, that's a, a wide, uh, diverse education and experience type and uh yeah yeah i'm I'm excited to have you on and kind of discuss a lot of these different things um from from your background in education and then you know some of the some of the actual real world examples and experience that i've seen in the field and working with different clients you know for for the wildlife side of things so 
Yeah, so that's cool. Um, so kind of moving on from that, I know you kind of mentioned that obviously you do work with um, a lot of private foresters and, and loggers and different stuff like that uh, for your you know actual different private landowners. Um, so I guess you get to kind of go into a more of a, a 101 or some things you can be looking for uh, as a landowner um, if you're looking to hire a forester or have a logger come out to your property and you know some things to look for while you're looking um, to find one and also while you're having them out to your property and you're walking your property and you're looking at your timber um, as kind of a putting together more of a you know obviously you want to know what your goals are ultimately as a landowner and you know is it, is it more for uh, a timber stand improvement long-term timber quality timber production or is it more so the wildlife side of things um, you know obviously you need to know what your goals are first but maybe go through some different things to be to be considering you know when looking at uh, getting a forester or a logger to come out if you're thinking about uh, putting your, your timber up or getting your property logged or, or timbered yeah that's a great question so sort of circling back to what you said about goals that that is the very first thing to really uh, hammer down and by that I mean you have to really decide what type of management you're interested in doing sometimes when I meet with a landowner they're not exactly sure what they want a lot of it is just uh, helping them understand what type of forest ecosystem they have in this snapshot in time or other type of ecosystem like I look at wetlands and non-forested habitats as well yeah um and a lot of that conversation starts to go in the direction of, well, what's actually feasible on your property. That's a really important thing to consider. And then you cross-reference that with what are the landowner's goals. And from there, you can actually start to narrow down different groups of professionals who would even uh, be considered in terms of who you might want to reach out to. I keep a list here of professional foresters, and I also have a list of the loggers and mills, and, and I don't play favorites. I'm not allowed to, given the nature of my position. But what I can say is, well, for example, if somebody has a property that is eligible for this uh, property tax reduction program called the Qualified Forest Program, uh, it's, a, it's a, an example of a property tax reduction program that some people choose to enroll in. There are actually requirements from the program side of things where if you want to enroll in that, you have to hire a private sector forester who is on a very specific list of plan writers and then have a management plan written by one of those foresters. So this is one example of where a goal of the landowner, one of which is, well, yeah, I'm interested in that property tax reduction and maybe I want to do some wildlife management. Yep. Well, if the property tax reduction is part of the uh, equation, then they have a pretty specific list of foresters they have to choose from to uh, get that plan written. And then to implement the plan, they can either try to work with that forester who wrote the plan to set up the timber sale. And by that, I mean the forester would be the liaison to mark the trees and then have loggers and mills bid on the trees that are marked. Or they can choose to try to implement the plan on their own. Um, so when it comes to working with either a forester who sets up a timber sale and acts as the liaison or working with the logger directly, these are two different things, right? That also depends on the landowner's comfort level. So, you know, do they want to have somebody there behaving as that liaison to make sure that the contract is written correctly, that the, the trees are being marked properly based on the landowner's goals, or are they comfortable having that conversation on their own with the logger? 
I found that that dividing line is really what often determines whether a landowner chooses to work directly with the logger in a mill or with a forester, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, no, for sure. And, and once you're at that step, you know, there's a couple things I always suggest a landowner do, which is one, you know, look for those red flags. You want to have somebody who's honest, who has integrity. There's nothing wrong with asking for references, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, hey, I want stuff in writing. And a logical first step is you're in a county that has uh, the forestry assistance program, which is the, the program that I'm tied to. There are 19 of us spread around the state. Then one logical first step is to have somebody like me come out because I'm an objective voice. I don't, you know, make a different dollar amount uh, because you do one thing or another. You know, I take home the same paycheck no matter what you decide. I'm just there to be helpful. Yep, for sure. And, and I have these lists of private sector professionals, so I can often have a good conversation with the landowner and help them, you know, one, determine what's actually realistic for them and then also help them decide what might be the better route for them to go with the private sector forester or direct with the logger or a mill based on their vision for the property and their comfort level. Yeah. Yeah, I know for sure. And I think I've seen that uh, before where, you know, guys want to have, sometimes I've found where they want to have loggers come out because they don't want to have to go through the hassle of a forester. And typically it's a longer process and there's more paperwork. And obviously a forester is getting commission off that. Um, and sometimes, you know, if you have a good relationship with a logger and you know they're, they're, they have, they're in your best interest for your you know, overall quality of your, or your timber. And that could be, you know, a good, a good option to go with. Um, but I try to, I try to push more landowners into, especially if they just don't have the overall education or understanding on long-term sustainability and, and silviculture and all that stuff. Um, is try to push them in that forester direction and then get an opinion. Obviously every goal, goals, landowner goals are different. Every wood lot is different. Every timber is different. So, you know, trying to come up with a plan that best fits their property, you know, is probably going to be better for them in the long term uh, of things versus just having a logger come out and, you know, somewhat select cut or high grade as, as most guys say. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's definitely some great, great tips for landowners to be thinking about uh, as we're kind of getting more into the, the, the habitat season, the landowners are thinking about going out and tip, cutting timber and stuff like that. Um, and I think that kind of correlates into um, something else I wanted to dive into is kind of understanding how forests grow um, and, and maximizing your timber value. Uh, obviously, I do a lot of hinge cutting. I'm more of a hinge cutting guy. Uh, but I try to always keep in mind, uh, first and foremost, what the landowner wants out of the property. Is it to grow more, more so timber or is it more so wildlife deer hunting, deer hunting value? Um, but I'm trying to always protect... Uh, the best of my knowledge from, from guys like yourself that I've learned from on, on how to protect that, that future timber trees, future seed producing trees, uh, stuff like that for more of the long term, um, but still have really good wildlife value. So maybe if we want to kind of touch on understanding, you know, basic forest ecology, uh, stuff like that, and then some maybe some different forest stand improvement stuff that uh, you recommend the landowners to do. Uh, you know, both for wildlife and for some timber sand improvement. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this idea of how forests grow, right, this is this could be a, a, a day-long conversation, you know, <laughs> sure. ultimately. So, uh, but one thing I really try to emphasize when, when this comes up is 
that forests are not a snapshot in time. So what I really try to uh, encourage uh, people to think about is forests are very dynamic and what you see now is not going to be what it is now, let's say 100 years from now, and what you see now is not what it was 100 years ago. And this would be the case if no other factors were influencing it other than just natural succession. So by that, I mean uh, one of the uh, basic principles of how forests grow, if you will, is that they go through these stages, right, um, of stand development. So oftentimes when the forest is at its youngest stage, it's, it's dominated by lots of species that are very intolerant to shade. So things like aspen, uh, poplar, if you want to call it that, aspen and poplar are the same thing, by the way. Yep. This is something that I've realized in northern Michigan, people aren't necessarily keeping those two together, but they're the same thing. Yep. Um, things that need a boatload of sunlight tend to be these pioneer species that first colonize an area. And then as they get older, the young seedlings of that same species cannot grow under their own shade so they ultimately get replaced by things that can tolerate a lot of shade when they're young and then slowly replace the ones that can't tolerate shade so an example might be a forest dominated by aspen with uh, some scattered oak and maybe some black cherry will get replaced by shade tolerance such as maple um, or in some areas uh, specifically sugar maple and hemlock and species that can actually tolerate tons of shade and then just slowly work their way up to the canopy. This is the procession of how forests grow in the absence of what we call a disturbance. So disturbances are also part of this world, right? So you might ask yourself, well, how did aspen and birch and things like that stick around for all these thousands of years if they just get replaced by these shade tolerance? Well, the answer is disturbance. So historically we would have these windstorms or uh, disturbances like fire or some other disturbance that would create these canopy holes to allow those things that cannot tolerate shade to recolonize certain parts of the landscape or to perpetuate themselves where they already exist and some of the ways we mimic that are to uh, do good silviculture so um patch cutting uh, aspen so patch cutting minimum three quarters to one acre patches of existing aspen will ensure that they sprout from the root system and that you'll actually have aspen there in the future and if in other areas of of a forest you're more interested in uh, driving it towards those shade tolerant species like maple you carefully do what's called single tree selection where you mark single trees here and there so that the canopy holes you create are small enough that something like aspen cannot thrive but something like maple will grow even faster up to the canopy and take advantage of that single tree opening or two tree opening so there are really interesting ways you can mimic those historic natural disturbances to uh, drive the forest in, in whatever direction makes ecological sense and also meets the landowner's goals but the underlying factor behind a lot of this also is what can the site actually do? Right. And that's all tied back to the the soils, the glaciated soils that we have in this part of Michigan. If you're on a really flat, sandy outwash plain in uh, parts of Manistee County, Mason County, Lake County, if you think about some of the stretches along M55 or US 10, you know, a lot of those areas, you're, you're just not going to grow veneer quality sugar maple as a timber example because those sites just aren't meant to support that type of cover type um, as yeah. compared to some of these hilly glacial moraines up by Arcadia that have these, these really high quality sugar maple hemlock mixtures where the sugar maple are veneer quality and high dollar trees. These oak forests you see in these sandy outwash plains, they, they have a different uh, 
potential in terms of both habitat and monetary value. And it's not like a better versus a worse. It's just different. If yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it so, is what it is. And I think, I think a lot of landowners have to manage their, their expectations, uh, inappropriately, um, and their overall for their goals. You know, I think if you, if you think you're going to have really good, uh, you know, if you think you're going to grow really good timber, well, you have to look at your soil and say, well, you know, what can this soil actually produce? Um, you know, I, I kind of think of things as a lot of times as, you know, when you're growing almost anything, you know, if you look at timber, you're starting from, you know, you're managing your soil and then you're managing your sunlight. So it's almost like it's, you, you know, you're managing from top to bottom or from bottom to top, whichever way you want to look at it. And you're, you're obviously, you're managing your soil and then you're managing how much sunlight you're getting in. Um, obviously, there's a lot of other things that fit into that, you know, broad spectrum view. Um, but that's kind of the way I, I try to uh, explain it to different clients is that's how you're trying to, you know, you have to manage your sunlight and then you have to manage your, your seed bank, your soil, your disturbance levels, you know, stuff like that. Obviously, if you have invasives, um, managing those. Um, so that, that's just different, uh, something that I've kind of thought about in a different way is looking, you know, trying to best explain it to, to landowners on how they're actually overall thinking about, you know, when they're actually looking at their woods, looking at their timber, maybe they're doing work, you know, they can look at it from a, a broad spectrum kind of perspective. Yeah, yep, that's that's a perfect way of putting it. And, and the invasive thing, uh, that's huge, because what invasive species do are completely change a successional trajectory. So everything I said about, you know, shade intolerance getting eventually replaced by shade tolerance, that whole natural succession pattern, which has driven how forests grow in North America for thousands of years since the last glaciation, that throw that trajectory out the window when you have certain invasive species that completely suppress uh, tree seedling regeneration and completely change the future of what that habitat might be. And the reason that's important is because some people get caught up in the idea that, well, maybe the deer are using autumn olive for cover. You know, that that's fine, maybe, yep. and, and they are to an extent, but that's one component of their habitat needs. And keep in mind that 100 years from now, if you let that autumn olive destroy that habitat, it's pretty much a wasteland for the deer as well. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's not in the best interest of that animal to uh, to keep something there just because in the short term they might be using it for cover because you can easily take the autumn olive out and replace it with the native shrub that won't dominate the forest and now you've got both worlds. Yep. Yeah, and I think, you know, like we were talking about when we were walking the property, you know, diversity is huge. I, I, I try to really uh, make that point with a lot of landowners uh, that I visit. You know, the, the more diverse you can get in your property, the better. Um, but at the same time, you know, like we were talking about with the autumn olive and different invasives, you know, deer are kind of their own worst enemy. And, you know, as you know, in, in most of the state, our deer density, you know, deer per square mile is, is normally really high. And um, so it's like, you know, if you, if you put a cage out, you know, in a, in a, um, a woodlot, you know, and, and you just put a cage out there and leave it all summer, most people would probably just be shocked at how much growth you would get uh, if, if deer were completely out of the equation. Um, you know, I, we do that a lot of times in food plots, but I think it's something different maybe to think about uh, to do in your woodlot. And I think a lot of guys would be shocked on, on how much more they could grow uh, if, if their deer density was lower. So obviously you have to, you have to manage your woods um, 
you know, obviously, ultimately, if you can manage your deer herd first, you have to get that in check. Um, and then, you know, you can really start seeing what your woods, you know, early succession growth, everything like that, is what that full potential is going to be um, without those deer just absolutely, you know, hammering it. And obviously, the deer are going to, they're going to take the best and leave the rest. Uh, you know, as, as you know, deer are selective browsers. So, you know, you're always kind of, you're always fighting, trying to keep uh, that diversity and keep the best quality browse, obviously in bedding areas and transition areas and all that stuff around food plots. So, um, yeah, it's just something that I figured I would touch on. Yeah, yep, and we'll, we'll definitely, we'll hit on that more when we get to the, the, the deer and uh, bird question that you, you posed for me as well. But yeah, great, great points. Um, the only other thing I would add to the, uh, the, the maximizing timber value question is site history. It's often one that it can be a difficult pill for a landowner to swallow, especially if they just purchased a parcel and there's been kind of a shoddy history. But what has happened previously can often drive how long it's going to take to get that property back to where the landowner would like it to be, or even to a place where many of us re would agree is ecologically a good place for it to be. So an example is uh, certain forest types that have been completely high graded in the past. Yep. It's going to take a lot longer to get a parcel like that back to a point where you have uh, a valuable timber again. And I'm, of course, talking monetary uh, goals right now because it's a simple one to, to process when you're doing the thought experiment. But when a stand has been high graded like that, it can be really challenging to get that stand back to a place where you're producing high quality timber again, um, even if that soil type you have is very much capable of doing so. So it's important to consider uh, site history as well because I often run into sites that actually have soils that can produce very high quality timber but because of the history of logging that took place there it's a very challenging road ahead to get it back to that place because most of what got left behind is uh, full of defect and things that are not considered a uh, high value stuff so you have to slowly uh, take the worst first is the general paradigm you take the worst first and leave the best and then you're not going to start getting a higher proportion of higher value timber trees until a couple cutting cycles in the future after you've called the, the truly defective stuff yeah all the all the while leaving good habitat trees because some of the merchantably defective trees are some of the best wildlife habitat trees and then i'll touch on that uh for the next question about managing woods for wildlife, but I got some general general diversity recommendations I can throw out to the world on this podcast for those that really don't know what kind of wildlife they want to uh, manage for. There's some really cool uh, rules of thumb that can be used to uh, help diversify the forest without sacrificing your uh, timber value. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, the way I the way I try to look at things and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, I, I a lot of the properties that I go to, I figure there's probably in between 20 to 30 percent of trees on, on most woodlots uh, that are either shade tolerant trees or you know they're just lower value uh, trees and and what I try to tell guys is you know let's take that whatever 20 or 30 percent or whatever that percent is on the property and let's take those down and either you know hinge cut them or traditionally fell them and a lot of those will stump sprout um, or if it's an invasive tree we don't want you know we'll treat it with some herbicide um, and then you know you're typically going to be left with your best trees and then you know you're, you're getting more sunlight to your your higher quality trees um, and then you're putting all that sunlight um, on the ground and then you're getting all those treetops on the ground too so 
you know, and a lot of what I'm doing with those is I'm, I'm creating, you know, walls of cover and, you know, I'm creating a lot of different travel corridors and stuff like that. And, you know, on, on the more so of the, the hunting um, side of things, I can get a lot more predictable deer movement uh, versus a lot of properties that I've found that have just been either come in, they've been logged and stuff like that. And it's, they've got cover, but a lot of times the landowner, they've got a lot of cover, they've got sunlight, but they can't figure out quite where their deer are actually bedding at or, you know, um, where they're feeding at. So when you can really, what I'm trying to do is create that predictability in deer movement on properties. And if I can create better, uh, better habitat and uh, grow timber at the same time, I think it's just a win-win for everybody. So. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to, uh, yeah, if you want to kind of hit on, um, dive into um, managing woods for wildlife as kind of a general term. I know we got a lot of hunters and, and whitetail land managers on here, but I think for the most part, a lot of guys are, you know, we ultimately, I think we want to manage, uh, you know, I do for, you know, many type, different types of wildlife. And I think that's what's great about managing for whitetails. I think a lot of other things that we do for whitetails can benefit a lot of other wildlife groups also, if done correctly. Yep, yep, to a certain extent, um, that, that's absolutely true. Um, something I really try to emphasize when it comes to uh, general wildlife management is a couple things. Uh, one of the very first conversations I have is obviously about landowner goals, because what I often will hear from landowners who aren't quite sure which wildlife they're interested in. Um, people who are interested in white-tailed deer, obviously, that's a, a, a no-brainer, right? Um, but some people just aren't quite sure, and I always circle back to this idea that um, forests are dynamic, right? Um, all habitats are. Non-forested habitats are dynamic. Yep. And there's no snapshot in time that's going to please them all in terms of wildlife. So diversity is really a cool way to try to uh, get wildlife diversity as well so diversity of habitats and by diversity of habitats I don't just mean species diversity I'm also referring to structural diversity so an overlooked component of all this oftentimes is making sure that you have a diversity of living and deadwood right deadwood is just as important for the forest as living wood yep. so there's some some cool things that you can do which is much easier to do obviously if you have a larger parcel it's more difficult if you have a smaller parcel but there are some cool uh, recommendations that i often uh, provide landowners that if they can and incorporate at least a few of these it can often uh, create what i call a diverse portfolio in terms of diverse habitats which can often translate to higher wildlife diversity than what they might have seen before they started implementing these practices and some of the practices I'll list here, you know, absolutely when they're done carefully will not interfere with timber sale value if uh, timber sales are also a component of all of this. So if you're trying to manage certain parts of your property to uh, get timber and make some money, you can absolutely do these practices without significantly impacting the uh, timber value on the property. This has been shown time and time again in, in many areas. Uh, and I pulled these recommendations specifically from uh, the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources. I went through a tree marking program there back in 2012. And some of these things I'm listing are actually required for tree markers to implement if they're marking timber on what Canada calls crown land in hmm. Ontario, which is basically their version of federal land. Okay. So 
I'll list a few things, and then before I get to that, the only other thing I'll say is that something else I really try to emphasize with landowners, and this pertains to invasive species or even exotic species that are not invasive, is just because we see wildlife utilizing something doesn't mean it's actually good for them Mm -hmm. in the long term. It's really something I run into a lot. So just because you see oodles of songbirds gobbling up those berries on autumn olive, we keep picking on autumn olive here, but it's an easy (laughs) one to visualize, right? Sure. (laughs) Um, That doesn't mean it's good for them. In fact, it's not. What's happening is they're spending their energy getting nothing but sugar water, and they're not searching for a more diverse diet that they need, which is to the benefit of their species. Mm -hmm. Their nests are at an increased risk of being predated in those thickets. And the insect diversity is non-existent in these automobile thickets because it didn't evolve on this continent. So when I talk habitat management for our native wildlife, I always try to advocate native habitats for our native wildlife because that's what has co-evolved with each other for the the past thousands of years. It just makes sense. Yeah, yeah, they kind of go hand in hand with each other. Um. So a couple couple cool uh, management recommendations just just for general wildlife here. Um, and I, I won't list them all, but a couple cool things people could think about is making sure that you're you're having a gradient of different canopy hole sizes because that promotes different types of trees. So when you have these single tree openings, you're going to get things that tolerate shade like hemlock, sugar maple because they can compete the best in those small holes, right? Because there's so much shade. On the other extreme, you might have these really large openings, like three-quarters to one acre or larger, which promotes things like uh, aspen, because aspen demands so much sunlight. And I would say the often overlooked one are these intermediate-sized canopy holes, because there's a group of species that are considered intermediate in shade tolerance that actually do the best when you have these intermediate-sized canopy holes, which might be like a group of three or four trees together that get taken down, and the size canopy hole you get resulting from taking those down you'll actually get things like American basswood and yellow birch do really well in those openings. Because if the, if the holes are too small, species like that can't tolerate the shade. And if they're too big, they get out-competed by things like aspen, paper birch, etc. if that makes sense. Yep. So these, uh, these we call them group selection openings in silviculture. But the idea here is, you know, if you're going to diversify species diversity, um, and we're just talking species right now. Having a range of canopy holes is kind of a cool approach to uh, uh, see what kind of different trees you might get colonized those different size holes. A couple other cool recommendations is, you know, retain at least four trees per acre if you have them that are considered regionally rare. So sometimes you might have something that is really not very common in the area. Uh, an example this far north might be, well, maybe you've got a little bit of bitternut hickory, which gets more common as you get further south in the state. Yep. But we're on the very northern edge of its range, so if you have bitternut hickory, it's like, you know, you should keep that and maybe uh, think about trying to manage for it if it's the only couple trees you have in this immediate area. Um, if you have conifers, uh, maintaining at least 60% canopy cover of these uh, conifer areas uh, is a good idea because that's really, really critical uh, wintering areas for not just white-tailed deer, but all kinds of other resident wildlife that depend on that thermal cover all winter. Um, good examples include eastern hemlock patches, uh, northern white cedar swamps, and even patches of eastern white pine when they're found in groups. Yeah, um, I mean, I've seen I've seen a lot of, uh, obviously I'm sure you have too, is the amount of browse on, if you look at eastern white cedar, on a lot of property yep. in, in northern country. It's it's amazing. I mean, they, they use it a lot, and if you can 
you know protect those areas or you know keep planting more because um, I'm, I'm see, you know I'm sure you've probably seen we were talking about this a little bit as a de decrease in the amount of regeneration and you know new seedlings that are coming up because they just get roused right down and, and killed by deer <clears throat> yeah yeah exactly a couple other recommendations here that are kind of cool are retaining at least three cavity trees per acre and, and even even having a range of cavity types so by cavity trees i just mean dying or dead trees so not necessarily completely dead sometimes they're just dying but they have they have cavities that have been created by uh primary cavity makers such as woodpeckers and you could take that a step further and say well we're also going to try to accommodate different types of cavities so you have uh, nesting cavities that are up in the tree that uh, woodpeckers might use them initially and then they get used by other critters such as uh, squirrels and things that can't make their own holes in the tree and then you have something like an escape cavity which is that hole you might see sometimes at the base of a beech tree i think is a good example that's a really valuable cavity for a lot of critters that are running around on the forest floor when you have that little gap where the uh, beech tree just it looks like it has prop roots and there's just a, a little place under the, the very bottom of that tree where those lateral roots stick out and that's utilized by a lot of uh, different wildlife in the forest mm -hmm. and then so, real quick trees. real quick josh so can you yeah. go into the importance of um why it's important to have uh, many of these different wildlife groups as far as sustainability and long term and what the overall benefit is to having those different wildlife groups you know obviously there's go ahead yeah yeah that's uh that, that's another eight hour answer but um, <laughs> um a lot of it is just how how complex uh, food webs are yeah that have evolved together right species that are part of the same food web and how they've evolved together this is by definition the nature of ecology and, and I think it's easy to forget that because we get so fixated on, on being obsessed with this one animal. So this yep. white-tailed deer, we're obsessed with deer, right? Well, deer don't exist in a bubble. Right. Deer exist as part of an ecosystem, and there's a whole lot of other things going on in that ecosystem. So one, one way to think of that is, well, how might squirrels be at all important to deer? Well, in some oak forests, um, the, the squirrel activity and the... the fact that they forget where they cache acorns and the way they just spread seed around is actually a pretty important component of, of how new oak pops up in different areas. There's a lot of other factors there determining how new germinates arise and become future oak trees. But the fact is those critters are important seed dispersers. Yep. And, and the same is true for a lot of birds and how fleshy fruits get spread around from the seed of fleshy fruits. And all of this ties back to what the deer are actually consuming, right? Right, so, yep. Um, and if you think about bird management, it's even more critical because a lot of these things are supporting uh, a whole food web of insects that many of these birds depend on because rarely are you going to get a bird that just eats one food type, right? They're right. often eating a mixture of insects and, and berries, and if their uh, bills are evolved to support it, uh, like a blue jay, for example, something that could crack an acorn or a bigger nut even. But the point is some of these other species found in the forest that are being dispersed by other critters are also important to these other animals that you might be obsessed with. So if you're really into songbirds, into forest songbirds, well, you should care about how these shrubs that they depend on for food or nesting habitat are being dispersed, and that ties into other animals that also depend on that forest. So 
that all gets back to, well, how can we provide habitat for those animals? If you have a forest that's too clean and too free of available habitat for some of these uh, wildlife, then you're going to have an issue with some of the way the, um, the seed is being dispersed. Granted, yeah. that's not always the case. You have certain trees that are very much wind dispersed, and, and, and it really depends on the species you're talking about. But these things are all connected, no matter what. Yeah. And another way to think about it is the the more native diversity is in place due to the management to strive for that, the more diverse portfolio we have in the face of unprecedented changes because we have no idea what the next exotic pest is going to be that moves in. We have no idea what the next thing is going to be that moves in and might focus on something that is really common. So if you get too obsessed, for example, about creating a sugar maple monoculture, well, I'll tell you, if Asian longhorn beetle gets here, which is currently in Ohio, and all you have is sugar maple in your 40-acre woodlot, and that beetle gets into it, you know, kiss your forest canopy goodbye. Yeah. Because that's a favorite tree for that pest. But if you have a more diverse mixture of trees, there's, you know, granted Asian longhorn beetle doesn't just attack maple, but there's still a chance you might have a forest intact after it runs its course. Sure. And, and, and there are things we don't know about yet, right, that are bound to get here. So a diverse portfolio is just a more resilient ecosystem to have in place. Yeah, um, for sure. And I think one of the things that I was recently talking to another forester about is, is overall just tree health, I think, directs poorly, um, correlates directly with um, overall, you know, their disease resistance. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but I think, if, you know, if you have that diversity, you have those those healthy trees. Obviously, if you got a lot of, you know, kind of related to like, a, you know, a white oak or red oak or, you know, acorn producing trees, seed producing trees, obviously that's the last stage of of what they're going to do in their life cycle is, is start producing, you know, they're actually, their seeds. And that's, you know, typically uh, that's a healthy tree. So I kind of relate that to if you, if you want those healthy trees to stay alive, um, you know, manage for those. And, you know, there's a less chance that you're going to have, you know, disease kill off a lot of those. You know, and, and, and also knowing that, you know, some disease is fine. This is another thing that I think people get too wrapped up in is that uh, the diseases I worry most about are the invasive ones, the non-native ones. So something like oak wilt. Okay. I don't I don't worry as much about native fungi like armillaria root rot or native insects like two-lined chestnut borer. And I say that because they're they're simply doing Mother Nature's job of calling the weak and leaving the strong. And yep. Some of the the weak that is resulting from their their infestation, as one example, is simply that you get a good balance of of dead biomass and living biomass all of which is benefiting the forest soils that these living trees depend on mm-hmm. so you, you know you have that diversity of uh of biota in the soil too which is better off when you have a good mixture of, of woody debris and leaves and different species inputting their different components into the soil that's always going to be a healthier soil than a straight up monoculture that's being overly managed as such yeah yeah, so why don't you kind of, if you could, hit a little bit on um, a forest management plan um, that kind of is more so based on wherever uh, the landowner's goals are for the property. Obviously, I know you work with a lot of foresters um, that are typically writing these plans, but I know you have the credentials and you've done this before. So um, maybe just kind of the basics of, of what to look for um, or, or what to create in that plan um, that's going to keep in mind their goals um, and kind of keep them, them on track 
of, of where they want to be you know long term down the road yeah yeah absolutely um so yeah i had written plans when i was in the private sector and, and keep in mind when i meet with landowners i also write what are called these technical summaries i, I don't do them all the time but i do them for many landowners Sure. There's a lot of details in these uh, technical summaries that I write, but I, I don't write these full-blown forest management plans, but I have in the past, and, and I see a lot of them are, that are written by the private sector foresters that I that I know uh, in my area. So I think what might be easy is to uh, sort of list some of the components of uh, what is required for a management plan if somebody were to enroll in this uh, tax program I mentioned earlier, the Qualified Forest Program, Mm -hmm. and they actually have a management plan checklist, and I I actually like their checklist, and I think this could be a helpful list of uh, components to uh, maybe consider if you, as a landowner, were going to get a management plan. So there's some basic background information that should always be in there so for example the name address phone number etc of the landowner and also the person who wrote the plan so the forester's name date contact information and then signatures that's really important another important component is what is the timeline of the plan for the qualified forest program the plan cannot exceed 20 years if you're not enrolling in a program like that you could make the plan go out further than that but a benefit of staying within that 20 to 30 year timeline is that that's a nice amount of time to sort of try to implement your plan. And then by the time you've gotten through that 20 to 30 year period, it's definitely time to like reevaluate your property and, and see, you know, what kind of adaptive things might you need to do um, because who knows 20 to 30 years from now, a lot will have changed. Sure. So that in my opinion is a better approach than saying well here's a 100 year management plan you know you can't possibly see that far into the future with a lot of these things so i do like the 20 to 30 year uh timeline on these um one of the very first things that should be in a plan are the goals you know everything that is in the, the subsequent section of the plan does not matter if you don't have goals so the statement of the landowner's objectives are very important. That should be in the very beginning of the plan. What does the landowner want on this property? And what is written in the plan after that should basically outline what is actually feasible given the soils, the current conditions of that property, um, as far as how it matches with the landowner's objectives, if that makes sense. Yep. So um, goals are huge. There should be a schedule and a timetable for various practices, and by that I mean um, you've got your goals laid out, and then you've decided what kind of management do I want to do. So maybe your your schedule has, well, in 2024 I want to plant this mixture of trees in this non-forested area on my property. So that's one of the practices that are specifically listed to be accomplished based on a goal. Maybe that goal is to restore an old field. I know that was one of the questions you had as well. So we're going to plant this mixture of soft mast and hard mast and bedding cover in this old field to enhance the habitat value for uh, white-tailed deer and other wildlife that can utilize those species. Yep. Another, another thing that might be listed in that table would be you know, the basal area of this northern hardwood forest by 2026 is going to be ready uh, to be thinned if you want to get some timber value out of that sugar maple. So maybe by 2026, the basal area is going to be hovering around 130, 140 square feet per acre of basal area. Time to thin it back to like 90 or 100. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could have, uh, that would be like a timber management practice listed in that schedule of practices. So 
other things uh, maps are really cool and really important in my opinion so there should be a map showing the soils uh, if there are wetlands it's good to have a wetlands map um, there should be a general map of the property location which includes near nearby roads uh, two tracks that go through the property any buildings and then the obvious map would be a map of the different cover types found on the property. So what are the different forest types? Maybe you have a red pine plantation over here. Maybe you have an oak pine forest over here and a nor northern hardwood forest dominated by sugar maple over here. Maybe you've got a patch of a white cedar next to a creek, things like that. That should all be mapped on a really easy-to-understand map with uh, proper symbols like a north arrow and the uh, legal description like what township, what range, what section, things like that latitude longitude if that's of interest um and that's the main thing uh yeah those are those are pretty basic components but if you, if you have all those components in a plan that's uh that, that's a pretty pretty good basic management plan that i think is easy to digest for a landowner yeah for sure yeah and that's what i've found too i think a, there's a big part of it that i try to do um and it's you know, obviously, I write quite a few of these habitat-based plans, um, but I think a lot of it is is not only you know obviously creating the plan and the long-term you know written information that you can kind of keep going back to, but then it's you know, on my side of things, it's more so educating them on how to hunt the property, um, which is huge because they're not going to see that success uh, if they don't understand how to properly hunt that prop that property. Um, but I kind of correlate that to a forest management plan. Is okay now you've got the plan. Uh, now you need to, you know, either uh, learn how to manage that property, and actually do the work, or you know, be put in contact with someone who can actually accomplish the work and get it done. I think that's a lot of. I see different people where they, they get the plan, they get the vision, and then it, you know, they might do a couple things, but they really don't dive into it and, and you know get a lot of that work done. And obviously, if you're not getting that work done, you know, not a whole lot's going to change. And you know, I tell, you know, most of the guys, I said, you know. If, if you're doing something, you know, typically it's better than doing nothing. <laughs> as long as you're not, you know, you're not cutting your, your high quality timber and stuff like that. Obviously, you know, there can be situations where you can go backwards, but, um, you know, like there, there's a lot of guys that are kind of afraid to do anything and they're ultimately not really moving forward with um, their goals. And I think a lot of that, you know, like you were saying, it doesn't, that's got to go back to what your goals are. You got to, you have to establish that first as a landowner and then you can, That'll better, better uh, help you keep you on track of where you want to be. Um, so, yeah, I think those are some yeah. great great points for overall forest management plan and things that guys can kind of think about, you know, as if they're working with a forester or, or someone like myself to kind of keep in mind. Yeah, and, and something else to, you know, think about with, for example, the some of the, the – practices that can be a little overwhelming for landowners are when they have a huge autumn olive infestation for example or if they have a giant acreage that they're looking to to replant whether it be planting woody plants like trees and shrubs or even native wildflowers and native grasses something that i usually encourage the landowner to consider is just to bite those projects off in small pieces you don't have to knock it all out in one year yep. because sometimes you look at it on a piece of paper and you're like oh no problem i can plant 30 acres that's like 30 acres is a lot to plant in one year are you sure if you're going to do 500 seedlings per acre and you're going to tube them all because you want to yep. protect them from the deer right. can you really do that in one year um 
Maybe not. Likely not. If you hire a contractor, maybe, but you know, you have a limited planting season too. So I just try to have those conversations with landowners. And, and for those that pursue uh, cost share money, so there's cost share money available through the farm bill, which is a whole other conversation, but you can actually get federal cost share money to offset the cost of doing projects like planting trees and shrubs, planting native wildflowers and grasses, controlling autumn olive. Yep. When, when that happens, the two offices I represent, I really encourage the, uh, the NRCS staff. Uh, they're the ones who do the application paperwork and, and the, the final uh, contracts. I really encourage them to make sure those projects get broken down into uh, reasonable pieces so that the landowners can feasibly actually do the projects and not get so overwhelmed that they end up, you know, being in violation of what they agreed to do for the contract. So that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a really important component of, of doing something in a plan is making sure that what you're putting in that schedule of practices is something you can actually do. Yeah, um, for sure. It's important to read that and understand that before you sign off on the plan. Yep, yep. And I've found that with, with quite a few different landowners where they, you know, they've got a big piece of property and, um, you know, they either they've hired me to come out or, or somebody else and, um, you know, they're just not sure where to start or they're just overwhelmed. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a matter of breaking things down. And typically on a, on a you know, several hundred acre property, you want to, what I like to do is kind of work inside out is what I like to call it. And kind of, you know, let's start with your best area, whether that be your habitat, you know, your best habitat area, your better, your better hunting location. And then that's kind of, let's get that dialed in and then let's kind of slowly start working out from there. So then that, that landowners is, you know, they're going to be able to see that, uh, that succession that progress a lot faster. And I've found that that forward motion and that excitement of either having success in hunting or they can actually see uh, their forest getting better and changing, uh, that, that really kind of motivates them to keep wanting to do more and, you know, get more done on their property. Um, so that's just something I've observed and found and what I try to do with, with landowners that have those bigger properties. Yeah. Yep. That's great advice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So kind of last thing I wanted to hit on was managing some old field habitat. Obviously we talked a lot about forests, um, different forest and improvements, but yeah, kind of hitting on, um, managing old field for obviously, you know, a lot of listeners here are more concerned or, uh, interested in, in whitetail habitat, but, um, also, you know, maybe some upland bird habitat. I know there's kind of been, uh, on the whitetail habitat side of things that I see and follow a lot of guys, there's kind of been a, a big switchgrass phase and um, where a lot of guys are, you know, wanting to plant a lot of switchgrass. And um, I think it can be great in a lot of situations, um, but I, I see a lot of these, you know, whether it be five, 10 acre field and they just plant the entire field in the monoculture of switchgrass. And, um, you know, I've found it just typically is not, near as productive as what it could be if it was maximized and you know diversified and you know there's a lot of other components that you could add into that um for kind of long-term wildlife habitat in general so yeah if you want to hit on that great great topic um so couple you know couple disclaimers on on this one because there's there's always a a a double-edged sword to this this type of thing that's sort of the paradigm we're in at the moment so as you alluded to early in the uh, podcast here, deer are pretty much overabundant, in my opinion, everywhere. 
in Michigan. I, I have yet to travel somewhere where I can't go out and look at pellet groups and say that, okay, these are these are well over the uh, the reference densities that are considered uh, ecologically healthy for both them and the habitats they depend on. Yep. Um, and for those who want to reference those numbers, uh, the, the general thought is, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20-ish deer per square mile is what is uh, considered ecologically uh, balanced. Uh, that's what is thought to have been the densities uh, prior to European settlement during a period when basically you had deer and a balanced uh, predator-prey relationship with things like gray wolves and mountain lions, and also when there wouldn't have been any, any issues with uh, tree seedlings and saplings recruiting and getting to the canopy layer. Um, we are now in a different uh, era where there's a pretty alarming decline in the numbers of tree seedlings that are actually becoming future trees, largely due to browsing, which is directly tied to the numbers of deer. So I'll cite one study here uh, that was published in 2020 where they found uh, in areas where deer were exceeding uh, you know, 50 per square mile, they were finding uh, sugar maple as one example, which is something that deer will, will browse saplings which are the ones that are over three feet tall were only coming out at about two per acre and to put that in context for stocking you know the sapling layers in these forests should be in the hundreds per acre sure. in order to have canopy recruitment in the future yeah a more common sense example would be uh something that you see all the time and landowners do as well which is these these winter areas that deer really do depend on and they're going to need those areas well into the future have zero seedlings recruiting you will get almost zero northern white cedar coming up under the cedar canopy in these uh these wintering areas uh, the same with hemlock and that's a that's a pretty alarming thing so calling is obviously helpful and uh you know you can refer to research where uh it's been shown that calling can actually make a difference there's actually a paper published by uh Jenkins and some other authors, uh, myself being one of the authors from 2014, where um, vegetation recovery was measured after 17 years of uh, hunting in Indiana State Parks. And these were in areas where uh, hunting just wasn't allowed for a while, or it was really low impact hunting, and then they brought it back and showed that, oh yeah, uh, uh, wise hunting with uh, an encouragement of doe management actually made a difference, and these vegetative communities started to recover. Oh yeah. But having said that the paradigm we're in currently is every single time i discuss uh planting of trees and shrubs especially with landowners when that's a goal and even if i think it's a good ecological thing to do and they agree i'm almost always recommending protection now yep so when you're planting stuff for the deer it's also important to protect them from the deer if that makes sense so you're planting habitat for the deer because you're thinking about them as a species in the future but in the short term you have to do things to ensure that that habitat is actually going to survive and that habitat has done no good if you put for example a bunch of oak seedlings out there and they all get pounded by the deer the first year and they die and you have mm -hmm. like 90 percent mortality so this idea of fencing and uh five feet tree tubes five feet's the magic number by the way i, I always suggest five feet no shorter um that's been measured as well in research or uh, effective repellents if you're vigorous enough to go out and reapply it constantly but there are ways to protect these plants that you're putting on the ground so when it comes to old field management a lot of times what i see with these old fields is a mixture of 
some native stuff, which I would encourage people just to leave alone and let that be. So if you have an old field where you have some scattered uh, eastern white pine and some scattered black cherry coming up on its own, those are both great, really great native species. Just leave them be. Yeah, They're going to be valuable both to the deer and to uh, upland birds. And then elsewhere in that old field, oftentimes what I'll see is just a whole hodgepodge of exotic stuff like uh, an exotic grass called smooth brome or a really nasty exotic form called spotted knapweed, both of which are considered invasive in the context of ecological management. Mm-hmm. Those areas are where you could think about doing some conversion to what I would recommend is a mixture of native species. So back to what you were saying earlier, not a straight up monoculture of switchgrass just to provide some bedding cover. Yeah. Um, if you do a mixture of like switch and other native grasses like big blue stem and little blue stem, um, maybe some Indian grass if that's feasible, and then throw in a whole mixture of different wildflowers like coneflower and black-eyed Susan, and then throw in different mass-producing woody plants like uh, shrubs such as hazelnut, uh, fleshy fruits such as service berry, um, maybe some oak for long-term hard mass. Yep. That's an example of just a diverse mixture to fill in that old field and make it a structurally and species uh, diverse habitat that now the deer are going to benefit from that, but also a whole bunch of other wildlife. So you've also done a more efficient approach there, which is you've, you've done this one practice where you did this mixture of uh, species in terms of what you planted, and a whole bunch of wildlife are going to benefit from that instead of trying to separate these different wildlife into these different sections of your old field by saying, well, I'm just going to do this one thing over here because I just want this one animal to use it. <laughs> well, oftentimes there's something you can do that's going to benefit all of them. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep, so, yep for sure. Um, and you can be strategic about what you plant to uh, create directional management, like what you were saying earlier. So maybe you really want to strategically put a dense patch of white pine in, in this one place for bedding cover so that you can say, all right, I think the deer are going to utilize this for some nice evergreen bedding cover. Or maybe you really want to focus a food area on this one component of the old field to really concentrate where certain songbirds are going to come in and feed on those fleshy fruits so that you have a predictable place to go look at them. I think that's fine. Right, but yeah. I, I really I really do discourage this idea of like monoculture plantings because something like switchgrass, for example, that's just not how it grew historically. It mixed with other species in those prairie ecosystems. Yeah, and that's what I've tried to recommend to a lot of landowners um, is to kind of go more of that high-diversity pollinator form-based uh, form blend. Obviously, you know, if you look at white-tailed deer, that's like almost 70% of a, of a deer's diet is forbs during the summer and yeah. Um, yeah. You know, into fall. So, I mean, you know, the more the more cover and food that I can create in one spot, um, you know, the better off, you know, I think we are on a lot of properties. And I think there, there's a lot of debate always in the hunting and habitat world is, you know, you don't want food in your bedding area. Well, you know, ultimately I want, you know, those does and those bucks to be feeding in that bedding area because I want them to stay there during daylight hours. And if you watch yeah. deer in a bedding area throughout a day, um, they get up, you know, multiple times. And the average time span that I've, I've found deer bed is in between uh, anywhere from 15 minutes to, you know, an hour and a half, somewhere right in there. And they're getting up and they're, they're going to be moseying around, browsing, feeding. They might lay back down for 15 minutes. And then obviously as as the evening progresses they're going to want to come out to those those bigger food sources you know open fields and stuff like that so i think that's where i try to recommend a lot of clients and push them towards either a high diversity pollinator blend and 
getting shrubs and other trees in their old field. Uh, and, and I feel like, especially on a small property, you really need to maximize that, that property um, overall size uh, because that's all you've got to work with. So everything has got to be working for you. Um, it's kind of the way I like to, to think about it. So Yeah, and, and the other benefit of the, the, the native mixture is it's been shown over and over and over again through research that higher plant diversity equals higher arthropod diversity, which includes insects, right? So if yep. you're interested in, in bird management, even the game birds, so something like a wild turkey, for example, you're much better off with a really diverse mixture in those old fields that's going to support a higher diversity of insects because turkeys are going to be in there feeding on, on various forms of protein, right? So yep. it's not it's not just nuts and fleshy fruits and you know they have a pretty diverse diet as well um so do lots of other birds so if, if all you have is this one species you're pretty limited on the types of uh, arthropod food sources available to uh various uh, critters higher up on the food chain if that makes sense yeah yeah no 100 percent. I, I totally agree with with everything there and uh yeah so i mean if you don't have anything else um if you want to plug your um where, where people can find you, where people can get a hold of you. Um, I really appreciate you coming on here again, sharing the, uh, your knowledge and your expertise. Um, so yeah, if you want to give uh, people some information on how they can get a hold of you if they're interested, um, any other resources that you think is, are helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, I appreciate you having me on, Colin, and uh, I I learn as much from landowners as they learn from me. So this is this is pretty much my dream job. Yep. And uh, same with folks like yourself. It's always fun to interact with other professionals and, and for us to all just uh, learn from each other. So if people want to reach me, um, I've got two phone numbers they can reach me on. One is my office number at the Manistee Conservation District, which is 231-889-9666. And then my cell number is area code 989-220-9236. And if anybody wants to email me, my email is joshua period shields, which is S-H-I-E-L-D-S, at M as in Mary, A as in Apple, C as in cat, D as in dog, period, O-R-G. So that's joshua.shields at macd.org. And, uh, I've got lots of things in writing. I've got lots of resources. I can email folks if they're interested in various topics that we've discussed today. Uh, I've got I've just got a, a whole list of references and, and other cool websites you can go to to poke around and learn more about these different topics. So I'm happy to help any way I can. Yeah, yeah. That's, no, this is awesome. I Like you were saying, I love... Uh, you know that's that's part of the reason why I started this podcast. I love bringing on guys and of all different backgrounds and experience levels, and uh, you know always continuing to learn. And, and I I try to do the do the same thing with every property I get to go to, every landowner I get to meet. I'm all, I'm always learning stuff. You know, so that's that's a fun part about it, like continued education, um, and actually you know actually being able to do stuff on properties and get to go back to them and actually see how it's benefited benefited wildlife and you know improve the habitat quality and everything. So. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'll plug all your information in the link in the description below so people can, can uh, reach out to you if they're interested. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate you coming on here again, and uh, maybe I'll have you come on here uh, in the future again. Awesome. Thanks so much, Colin. Yep, yep, thank you.
Well, hey guys, thanks a lot for tuning in to this episode of Legendary Habitat Podcast. I really appreciate all the views I've been getting. Uh, this podcast has been growing a lot over the last several weeks, so I really appreciate the support. I also really appreciate um, Josh coming on here and sharing his knowledge and experience. Um, I'll leave all his uh, information in the link in the description, as well as uh, myself. So if you guys have any other questions, feel free to reach out to me or to Josh. And remember to always strive to be a better steward of God's creation. Thanks again, guys, and we'll catch you in the next episode.